John chapter 8. The woman caught in adultery. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to him to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, my Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Awesome. Thanks, Carolyn. So it's my um, privilege this morning to be able to lead us as we explore God's Word together and as we talk about uh, this story in, in, chap- in John, chapter 8. Um, it's one of the interesting stories in the Bible where you may have noticed if you're reading along uh, in your Bible that there's a little either footnote or there's a note or there's like it's all in italics and it says something about the earliest manuscripts do not include this story. Um, it's a bit of a weird one. Like It's sort of like, how does that, how does that work? What do you do with that? Um, I don't even know why I bring it up because it can cause <laughs> a bit of trouble for some people. But basically there's some early manuscripts of the Bible, early copies that actually don't include this story or they include it in a different place or it's sort of variations and... That can prove problematic for people, but if you do research into it, the Bible is one of the most accurate documents from from the time, so don't get too frazzled. But basically, what it means for us as we explore it this morning is that we don't take, I mean, it's there's enough evidence to keep it in the Bible, right? So it's still a story that we can read, we can learn from, um, but we don't sort of take drastic conclusions out of it and sort of say, okay, every time... Jesus gets a question he doesn't know the answer to, he starts drawing in the dirt. Like, that's not a conclusion we're going to draw because of, this is what the story says. But if there's things in there that are backed up by other parts of Scripture, then I think that's good, good truth that we can learn from. Um, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at a few different perspectives from the story, um, a few different characters. What does Jesus teach them? Um, and essentially that Jesus teaches us, one, to sort of leave our life of sin. Uh, two, to also leave our stones behind. And then three, that he's the perfect saviour and that we find love and acceptance ultimately in him. So one of the key things that Jesus shows, firstly the Pharisees. We're going to look at the Pharisees because the Pharisees, are, they're inter- interesting characters for me in the Gospels. Um, so we're going to see what Jesus shows them, but also what Jesus shows all of us. And that's this, that we're essentially, we're all in the same boat. I mean, you can imagine the scene. The Pharisees, you know, they, they drag this woman out. Like she's been caught in adultery. 
like caught red-handed, so to speak. Like, and they drag her out, and she's busted. She's broken the law. She's deserving of death. They're, they're right. They're correct. Everything they're saying is 100% true. But what Jesus reminds them is that they too have broken the law. They too have messed up and sinned, um, and that we're all in the same boat together. It might look different, might look different from the outside, but inside it's the same. We've all sinned, we've all messed up. It's, you know, the, the great tea of tulip, you know, total depravity. Like, it marks us all. We've all messed up, you know, by birth and by nature, but also by choice. I think sometimes we can put sin in this sort of um, almost like I can't help it sort of boat. But also I think we need to recognize that actually, like I look at my own life, like I choose sin a lot. You know, it's not just something that I have no control over, but it's also a choice. Um, In Romans 3, it says, no one is righteous, not even one. And then later on it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet the Pharisees were intent on pointing it out in other people. They were intent on pointing out other people's sin, mainly in an effort, I think, to elevate themselves. So we make ourselves look good by pointing out other people's sin, other people's faults, other people's mistakes, or anything like that. I just realized I did that before by pointing out other churches' sound and media teams. (laughs) But like we do it even without even thinking. We point out other people's mistakes, other people's flaws, in a way to make ourselves look good. Jesus tells a parable in in Luke 18, where he says that, you know, he tells the story of the the Pharisee who gets up to pray, and he says, you know, "Thank, thank you God that I'm not like these other people. I'm not like the adulterers and the unjust and the tax collectors and the murderers. Thank you that, you know, I fast twice a week and that I'm holy and good. And like that was so much of their heart and their motivation was that, thank you, I'm not like them because they're bad and I'm actually pretty good. And often when you read through the Gospels, I get like this, where you look at the Pharisees and you just, you sort of laugh at them a bit. You're sort of like, how, how could they not get it? Like Jesus is right in front of them doing all this stuff. How could they not get it? Like how could they be so far away from the truth? But more often than not, I recognize in my own life, and I I guess it's probably all of us as well, that actually we're probably a lot like the Pharisees in a lot of ways. That I think particularly in sort of conservative circles like ours, I think what I sort of was thinking about this week is that we have a perfection problem. We have a perfection problem. We actually spend so much time and effort trying to be perfect, trying to look good, trying to give this sense that we've got it all together. We avoid talking about our struggles. We avoid talking about our mistakes, our mess. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. I mean, think about it. When was the last time that you've confessed your sin to someone else? Like it says in James. James says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Like when's the last time you've actually done that? Actually gone to someone and said, I I messed up. I know for me, it's a long time. (laughs) Because we, we don't like to do it. We don't like to sort of admit that actually... I've messed up, or I don't have it together, or my life's a bit of a mess. I mean, even just the very issue of saying, help. (laughs) How often do we struggle just to say that? Actually, 
turn to the people next to us and say, hey, I need a, need a hand here. We spend so much of our lives trying to just give this projection, this appearance that we've got it all good. We try to impress people, please our parents, look better than the people around us. And we get caught in this, um, what Andy Stanley talks about. He talks about the comparison trap. That we get caught in this comparison trap. It's not just, and it's not just an individual thing, but also I think a collective thing. Um, where, you know, as a collective we can go, you know what, we feel good about ourselves because, you know, we've got good kids programs or we've got the right theology or whatever. And we sort of start to feel better about ourselves because different things and so i think when we look at the pharisees and see what jesus sort of teaches them in terms of hey you're all in the same boat i think what it sort of leads us to is that actually we don't get caught pointing out everyone else's sin we need to be careful not to point out everyone else's faults or mistakes and get caught in this comparison trap because often we think like comparison is about comparing to people above us like we, we're envious we're jealous and the bible talks a lot about that and we might t- we'll touch on that later but i think also comparison is sort of like this downwards thing that we actually compare ourselves to those who are worse than us to make ourselves who are better and i think this can quickly lead to pride and it can quickly i think also lead to independence because they're not as good as me i can do it myself i don't need help and i think we have that perfection problem in our in our church, in our culture, in my life, that we actually have this pride and independence. And what that leads to, if you follow that through long enough, it leads to isolation. If you're, if you're independent for long enough, that'll isolate you from the people around you. It will develop shallow relationships. And that actually part of what it means to be a follower of God is actually to admit our need for God. And part of following God is doing it together and admitting the need for the people around you. See, the Pharisees thought they were all good. They thought they didn't need a saviour. They certainly didn't need Jesus. But we need to recognise that we're all in this same boat, that we're all sinful, that we're far from perfect. And in the end, we need to fall on our knees and we need to admit that actually, you know what, I need a saviour. My life isn't all together. When you look closely enough, there are things that I can't control. There are things that I can't, you know, seem to figure out and that I need a saviour, I need someone to rescue. And so when we look across the whole Bible, we see that perfection is, is not a requirement, but it is a standard. So here's the thing, I've been saying we've got a perfection problem, but when you look at what Jesus says, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That being perfect is still a standard that we're, we follow because... We're following someone perfect. But it's not a requirement. You don't have to be perfect to come before Jesus and to be in relationship with Him. Um, Hillsong United, they have a song, and it says, if, if you sought perfection, I would die trying to reach it. This broken heart is all you want. But I think when we continually strive after being perfect, when we continually you know, try to be as perfect as we can be in any sphere of life, it actually becomes this sort of hollow trap that sucks life out of us. I mean, you see it in so many industries, people that sort of continually strive to be the best and to be perfect in their craft or whatever. Like, it's a straining, a strenuous exercise. That we actually, 
when we come to Jesus, it's actually, you know, in our weakness that he's strong. That we actually need to give ourselves the space and the freedom to be weak. One, before God, but two, also before each other. It's actually okay to not have it all together. Because the reality is none of us do. You know, in Psalm 51, you know, David, you know, he's... His great p- prayer after he's, <laughs> I mean, David's just done two of the worst things that you could do. I mean, there we go comparing again, hey? <laughs> he's just worse than ours. But David's, he's committed adultery and then followed it up by murdering the husband to try and cover it all up. And, you know, his prayer, he's, uh, you know, says that, you know, if you wanted sacrifices, you know, that's not what you want. In the end, a broken and a contrite heart is what the God is after. He doesn't want you to just tick the boxes of religion and say, yeah, do that, do that, do that. He doesn't want that sort of perfection of meeting every spiritual need. God just says he wants a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that says, you know what? I need Jesus. I need a Savior. So I think for some of us, we need to hear that this morning, that actually it's okay to not have it all together. And you can breathe a sigh of relief. You can fall on your knees and go say, Jesus, I need you. And know that perfection is not a requirement to meet with the perfect one. But it is a standard that we look to follow because the person that we're following is perfect. It's sort of a weird concept to think of what, what, is, what is a perfect Savior? Like, what does Jesus actually look like if he's perfect? Um, Wade and I sort of road trip the other week, and we listened to a few sermons. Like, we had a lot of driving. And so, you know, the one way to sort of keep Wade quiet when we're driving is to put a podcast on, and then he usually fell asleep. <laughs> but, you know, we listened to this John Piper sermon, and he just gave this great example that I, I just want to, like, so... Imagine, you can, start, you can sort of think of some people while I do, but imagine the kindest person you know. Imagine the most loving, the wisest, the most patient, the most intelligent, the strongest, the most tender-hearted, the happiest, the most peaceful, the most optimistic, the meekest, the most courageous, the best sense of humor, the most generous... Like, think about some of those good qualities in people and think of some of the people that come to mind and then sort of combine them all into one person and then sort of times by affinity. And not only that, but like proportion those traits so that they're like beautifully equal, like they're perfectly just and perfectly loving. Like, and I think then you're starting to get a glimpse of what Jesus is like. You know, when you take sort of the broken images of God and start sort of putting them all together and you start to get a little bit of a picture of what, what God is like. But even then, that's only a glimpse. Like that's how great God is. That's how good He is. That's how, how big He is. So far beyond our, our comprehension. Yet He reaches out to us. The complete opposite of sin. Like Jesus, it says that Jesus is holy. They sort of he's set apart. So there's us in one boat, and then there's Jesus who's holy, who's set apart, who's in a totally 
separate boat. And yet he's the one that comes to us because in the end, he's the only qualified Savior. In 1 Peter 3 verse 18, it says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be righteous because in the end, Jesus, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous, for the broken, so that, so that he might bring us to God. It's not so that the unrighteous would figure out their way and eventually come to God themselves. No, the righteous died for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. Jesus brings us to the Father. Like, Jesus does it. There's nothing in there, in that verse, that suggests we have to do everything. It's not reliant on our own effort or on our own good deeds or on our own works or anything like that. Like, that is grace. That is grace. That is, that is freedom. That is the fact that Jesus brings us to the Father. The, un, the righteous dies for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And I just think that is a beautiful and freeing thought. That actually you and I, we're coming to the Father. And it's not dependent on our own good effort, our own good works, our own good deeds or anything like that, that we're saved by grace. The righteous one comes and dies for the unrighteous. I think that's the beauty of grace, and that's the Savior that I want. That's the Savior that I need, the Savior that takes me all the way. He doesn't sort of take us halfway and then say, okay, you can go figure it out from here. In Romans 8, it says that God sent us His Son, and if if He did not spare His Son, will you not graciously give us all things? God sent his son and he'll graciously give us all things. He's not going to sort of send his son and then leave you to figure it out from there. No, God is the ultimate savior. And so if you go back into the story, if Jesus is the perfect one, the one without no sin, then there's one person left when, you know, all the Pharisees leave one by one, oldest to youngest, and then Jesus is left. Why? Because he's the only qualified stone thrower. He is well within his rights, according to the rules that he's just, he's, he's made up there. According to, he's the one that's allowed to throw the stone. And he's perfectly within his, his rights. The woman's guilty, the law says it, and he's without sin. So he could throw the stone. And see, in many ways, we are just like the woman in the story. We get dragged out. We're guilty. We've broken the law. Jesus is perfect. He could throw a stone, but here's the thing, he doesn't. And that should be a total game changer for us in our lives when we recognize that Jesus looks at us and he says, where do they go? <laughs> you see, they all left. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And when Jesus looks at us and says, neither do I condemn you, that should totally change our lives. In John three sixteen, I mean, we all know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the very next verse, verse 17, says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think we need to be reminded again that we're not condemned, but that we're saved by grace. Romans 8, it says it as well. Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That if we believe Jesus, if we receive his grace, there is no condemnation. And this is so important for us because I think the devil is like the Pharisee. The, devil's, the devil will drag us out before God and before people. You know, the other name for the devil is the, the accuser. So he will accuse you of your sin. He'll drag you out and say, look, this person sinned, they've messed up, and you can be like that woman and sort of sit there and feel guilty and feel shamed and feel like I'm not good enough. I mean, look at these perfect people around me. I'm unworthy. I'm not, you know, I'm, I am, I'm nothing. And that, I think that's so often what the devil will try and do, will make you compare yourself to those around you and go, you know what, I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I'm not. But we need to know that actually you're never condemned if you're in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. It's a total game changer. Because it means if there's no condemnation, it means that our status and our position before God is secure. Our status and our position before God is secure. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't reject us. But instead, He accepts us. He loves us. And He welcomes us in. That should totally change everything about our life if our status and our position before God is secure. Because that means then, for me, that that's a firm foundation. That is a firm foundation which you can build your life upon. Because it's not based on your own works. It's not based on your own good deeds or your bad deeds or your mistakes or anything like that. Like it's based upon what Jesus has done and His unending, unchanging grace. So that's, for me, a firm foundation. That is solid rock. So if our status and position before God is secure because it's based on Jesus, not on us, therefore our identity can be secure, that we can actually know that actually I'm loved and accepted by God. I'm not condemned. Our, our future is assured because Jesus brings us and He graciously gives us all things. You know, our past is redeemed. Our present has purpose and meaning. Like our lives should be totally changed by the fact that we are not condemned by Christ, but instead we're given grace and love. And so I think we need to look to grace and look to Jesus instead of looking around and comparing ourselves to others. In Proverbs 29 verse 25, it says, The fear of man lays a snare or lays a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, you may get caught comparing yourself, either like the Pharisees and comparing yourself to those who are sort of worse than you and sort of saying how much better I am and feeling good about yourself. Or you may get caught like the woman and sort of look up and see, you know, all these holy people who have caught you out and feel like you're not good enough, feel like, you know, you don't measure up. They don't quite have it all together like they do. 
But no matter what, if we're caught in this fear of man, this comparing of ourselves to others, we need to recognize that that's a trap, that's a snare, and that sort of ongoing bondage will rob us of life. And it's in that place that we need to know that actually God doesn't condemn us. He loves us and He accepts us. And it's not the past version of you. It's not the future version of you. You know, God doesn't just see you as a project that one day you'll get better enough and like that end version, that's the version I'm going to love and like. No, God sees you as you are right now and He loves you and accepts you. In fact, He might even like you. He's your friend, He's your father, He's your saviour and king. And He's a solid, unchanging rock and foundation of which we can build our identities and our lives. See, God doesn't want your perfection because someone perfect has already beat you to it. He's come and He's died for you so that with your brokenness, your weakness, your sin, you can come to God who loves you and who calls you to follow Him. See, in the end, perfection is not the requirement, but it is the standard because perfection is the one that we're following. And that is what the woman is challenged with. She, can't, she comes in contact with a perfect Jesus who doesn't throw a stone at her. And, and Jesus offers a pretty, pretty tough challenge. He says, okay, go now, live your life of sin. Could she do it? I don't know. <laughs> Could she do it through Jesus' strength and grace? I think so. Because our identity and our position is secure in Him. So for maybe for some of us this morning, that's what we need to be reminded of. That actually, we need to be reminded to leave our sin. To actually turn away, to run away. Knowing that we can only do it through His strength and through His grace. That maybe we need to be reminded and convicted of our, the depth of our sin. But also that we'd be reminded and convicted of the magnificence of God's grace. Because I think too often we sort of say, we talk about sin and you feel bad about it and then you try and fix it yourself. But my prayer this morning is that we would be just as convicted about our sin as we would about God's grace. That actually God's Spirit would open our eyes to both. That would see our brokenness, but that would also see God's goodness and His greatness and His glory and His grace. That the Holy Spirit would reveal both to us this morning. I think the other thing that we need to hear is, is what the Pharisees did, and that's we need to leave our stones behind. That if, if Jesus doesn't condemn people, then neither should we. Because I think so often we can be like the Pharisees and we can point other people out, we can feel good about ourselves, we can be quick to judge, quick to condemn, quick to label, quick to exclude, but we need to recognize that we're all in the same boat. If none of us are perfect, if we're all broken and sinful, then none of us should be grabbing stones to throw. And I know in my life how quick I am to do that, to judge others. And I think we need to recognize that we need to all put our stones away. And when we do that, when we start doing that, actually it begins to make it easier for people to do what we talked about at the start, to actually be vulnerable and to be weak and to be 
you know, honest and real about their struggles and about their sin, about their mess. Because they know that when they do that, they're not going to be judged. They're not going to be condemned. People aren't going to throw stones and say, you terrible person, you. Instead, they're going to actually go, you know what? We're all the same. We all need Jesus. And they're going to lead you back to Jesus rather than lead you back to guilt and to shame. And that's a community of grace. That's what the church needs to be. Not people who condemn and who put down and who throw stones, but instead people that are real and honest and vulnerable. And actually, when we put away our stones, we allow people and give people the grace and the freedom to do that. And when we do that, like I said, we can shine a light in the community. We can lead people to Jesus, not that they would, so that they would, one, they would see the gospel of grace in the person of Jesus, but also that they would feel it through the community of grace. That's my prayer, that we wouldn't just be people who show, who sort of lead people to the gospel and to see grace in the Bible and in the person of Jesus, but also that we would be able to live it in a way that people see it just as much. And so in the end, we need to recognize that we're all broken. We're all sinful, all in the same boat. No one is righteous, not even one. But there is Jesus, the righteous who came and died for the unrighteous. He loves you. He died for you. And he gives his life so that we can now build our lives on him, the firm and the solid rock. We can, we can bank our lives on his love and his goodness. We can leave our stones, we can leave our sins, and as a church, we can continue to become like the Jesus that we follow. That's our prayer. That we wouldn't just sort of, you know, pray a prayer and that's it. We've got, got our ticket to heaven. But know that we would continue to follow Jesus each and every day in every step of our lives. Because in the end, that's what he's worthy of. That is, he's so perfect and so good and so great and so glorious that he's worthy of our whole lives, devoted to him in worship and in following him. And so I pray that this morning that we'd be reminded of that, of God's perfection and just how worthy he is of everything that we have. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you are just so great, that you're holy, you're set apart, that you're good and loving and just. And God, I just pray right in this moment now that you would, just by your Spirit, just open our eyes just to see you again. And that God, as we see your grace and your goodness and your love, as we see your magnificence, your bigness, may we be reminded of just how small we are and how broken we are. And would that not drive us to shame or guilt or feeling unworthy, but would that drive us to our knees to recognize that we need a Savior? And the only qualified Savior is Jesus. So God, just in this moment, I just pray that you would just just remind us of that.
God, you are holy. There's no one like you. Open up our eyes. Lead us and guide us. May we build our lives upon you because you are worthy of everything. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.